Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And we've got a good show for you today. We have a couple of pertinent topics to talk about, uh, the first of which is DeAndre Ayton, who has just been an absolute monster for the Suns lately. He's been on a real tear, and we really couldn't do another show without talking about how good he's been over the last few weeks. So it's time to give the big fella some overdue love as far as how good he's been over the last couple of games and the last few weeks, honestly. Um, we're also going to talk a little bit about the Suns' lack of playoff experience and uh, try to find some comparisons in NBA history to teams that have made it to the finals or who have had championship aspirations despite a similar lack of experience, of playoff experience, um, and see how they fared and whether the Suns want to follow in their footsteps or not. And then we're going to close with our latest G-rated segment on the HBO Max series Made for Love which is an interesting dark comedy. If you have not checked it out yet, we'll get into all of that later. The season one finale just dropped uh, earlier on Thursday. So we have a whole first season to talk about of that. But we're going to start this segment by uh, reminding everyone that if you are watching this on YouTube, great. If you're not, and if you haven't checked out our YouTube channel yet, make sure to go ahead and do that. It's called the Valley of the Suns podcast YouTube channel. Um, it's linked pretty much everywhere where I link this podcast and we're posting both the full episodes of the show and also tidbits from pregame, postgame interviews, shoot around interviews, uh, whatever with the Suns. Since we have access to those things, we might as well put them to good use and put them up on YouTube. So a lot of good tidbits on there as well. If you're a Suns fan, um, there have been a lot of great interviews, a lot of good players to get quotes from this season. So definitely something worth checking out on our YouTube channel. But uh, we got to start this week with DeAndre Ayton uh, coming off Thursday's win over the Kings. Ayton had 26 points, 11 rebounds, shot 10 of 11 from the floor, and it was his 30th double-double of the season in 55 games, uh, his second straight game leading the Suns in both scoring and in rebounding. And what's interesting is obviously after the game, Everybody had a lot of glowing praise for DeAndre Ayton because he was key for the Suns down the stretch. He was um, kind of their go-to option as far as taking advantage of some of those mismatches because the Kings were playing small, and he delivered. He got to the free throw line. He made some some baskets, um, and he was just good throughout the night. Um, and that's kind of been his MO for the last few weeks now, honestly. Um, he's just been very steady. He's not putting up you know, world shattering numbers. Uh, he has been a, pretty much a double, double machine over that stretch, but he hasn't been scoring out of his mind, rebounding out of his mind. Um, he's been really efficient, but he's been kind of quietly putting up these great numbers. And more importantly, he's been doing a lot of the little things that the Suns need for him to do to win, you know, cleaning up on the offensive glass, um, you know, communicating on defense and being in the right spots and pick and roll coverage. Um, you know, just doing a lot of those little things, cleaning up around the basket, setting strong screens, rolling hard, sealing hard um, down low in the paint when he gets those mismatches. 
he's just been doing exactly what the Suns need him to do. And it's not a lot for him to be effective. Um, and so before the game, I asked Monty about what he's seen from DeAndre Ayton over the last few weeks because he has been playing so well and has really looked locked in on both ends. And uh, for our quote of the week this week, here is what Monty had to say. I think he's just settling into a role. And I think when guys hear role, it's almost like a negative, like they're going to be limited. Um, but everybody has a role. You know, Book has a role. Chris has a role. DA's finding out his role um, for us to be really good. He, he can dominate the paint. That doesn't mean he can't step out and knock down a jump shot. But it, the one thing that gets lost in his efficiency is his ability to, to screen assist. A lot of our plays happen because of his screening, whether it's book coming off of a screen or he and Chris in pick and roll. And that is something that we feel like is an advantage for us, but he's really locked into trying to be a, a beast in the paint, whether it's his, his improved jump hook, um, his turnaround on the baseline. Um, and, and he hasn't settled when teams have tried to force him to settle, I think he's, you know, really locked into, you know, getting as close to the rim as he can. And I think that opens up a lot for our team. And then his offensive rebounding um, is second to none. Some people may have better stats, not many, but the way that he offensive rebounds and gets us extra possessions is huge for us. And I've said it to him and um, people on our staff, you know, he plays so unselfish. Some people get upset when he doesn't shoot it around the basket, but, you know, DA is always trying to make the right play and he'll find an open guy on the wing to knock down a three. I think he's, he's really locked into being a team player in that regard. So obviously there's a lot to unpack there with a, with a quote that long. That's one of our longer quotes of the week, but um, I thought it was one of the best tidbits we've gotten from Monty this season as far as Aiton's play is concerned, because he touched on a lot of things. He touched on the elite offensive rebounding that Aiton is capable of. He's touched on, um, you know, how DeAndre Aiton has kind of found his role with the Suns. And when you say that, it sounds like a bad thing. It sounds like you're diminishing the talent of a number one player. But as Monty noted, it's his selflessness on this team, his willingness to embrace his role that actually makes it a good thing, you know, from a number one overall pick, you normally expect an ego, you expect a guy who needs a lot of touches to be happy. Um, and there are a lot of people on Suns Twitter who fall in that category as far as wanting DeAndre Ayton to get, you know, 15, 20 touches a game. But the reality is the Suns offense would not be better with Ayton getting 20 touches a game in the post. Like we've seen it earlier in the season. And I, I've harped on this multiple times. Um, but if you watch this team play, Aiton's effectiveness is not, you know, force feeding him the ball on offense on the block, because when that happens, the offense grinds to a halt, the ball movement stops, the double teams come. Um, and you, you know, just operating from the post is not necessarily as, you know, a back to the basket big with a limited number of post moves to this point, no offense to Aiton. That's not the most way, that's not the most effective way to maximize him. So the way that the Suns maximize DeAndre Ayton is by having him set screens with his gravity drawing defenders in, with the Suns making opponents pay when they don't send two guys at him when he's rolling to the rim. 
letting him clean up around the basket, the way that he attacks the offensive glass and either gets his own putback or provides second chance points for the Suns. And none of this sounds glamorous. It sounds like, like Monty was saying, it, it sounds like a bad thing, you know, like we're trying to diminish his value or, or take away from his talent. DeAndre Ayton is, is talented, but his effectiveness comes from just doing his job with this team that has so many shooters to make his job easier. It's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. And that's what we've been seeing from Deandre Ayton lately. And I think that's what Monty was, was alluding to there with our quote of the week this week. Um, So if you look at the numbers on the season, Deandre Ayton is averaging 15.2 points, seven or 10.8 rebounds, 1.1 blocks. He's shooting 62.6% from the field. Um, and he's pulling down about 3.3 offensive rebounds a game. Uh, overall, he ranks sixth in the NBA among all players in total offensive rebounds. Um, and he's got a plus 4.7 point differential. So pretty decent numbers, not as good as last season's individual numbers. But the difference is lately, his numbers have risen to levels that we're familiar with, you know, like when he averaged like 18 and 11 or whatever it was last season on like 60% shooting, his numbers are back around those marks over the last couple of weeks. But the difference is he's also living up to his billing as a defensive anchor. He's setting these strong screens. He's providing gravity for the sun shooters with his roles, with his screens. Um, and, and, you know, as Monty said, his screen assists are providing lots of points. But the one thing he didn't point out is when DeAndre Ayton is rolling, he's dragging one or two or three defenders with him, which frees up all of these Suns three-point shooters. So that's a huge team, a huge thing for this team and for its offense. And that's part of what makes the Suns offense so effective is not force feeding him the ball on the block, but rather utilizing his gravity having him set those strong screens, cleaning up around the basket, just doing the things that are honestly not that hard for him to do when he's locked in. And and we're seeing kind of the best of both worlds when he's really locked in on the offensive end like that. Um, Now on the season, the Suns net rating is still slightly better uh, without him. It's plus 8.1 points per 100 possessions than it is with him, which is 7.4 compared to 8.1 but that gap is really closing rapidly. It was a lot bigger before the last couple months of the season. Um, And, you know, the gap on the defensive end really isn't closing that much. Um, They are a team best 103.1 in defensive rating without him compared to 109.2 with him. So they're giving up about six points per 100 possessions more on the season with him on the court. Um, But again, that gap is narrowing and it's been a lot better lately. So in the last 15 games, Aiton is averaging nearly 18 points per game, 10.4 rebounds, um, and 1.3 blocks in about 31 minutes per game. He's second in scoring in that stretch and first in rebounds, obviously, first in blocks as well. He's shooting 69% from the field, which is nice. Uh, He's shooting 80% from the free throw line. And he's kind of slightly upped his uh, free throw attempts to 3.1 attempts per game. Now, 15 games is not a massive sample size, but, you know, we've, we've, and we fell for this before earlier in the season when he had that four game stretch where he just looked dominant. And we talked about it on this podcast, you know, dominating was here. This hasn't been dominating. He hasn't been putting up, you know, eye popping numbers, but his numbers have risen and he has been also effective at doing the intangibles and the little things the Suns need him to do to win. 
Um, and it's kind of showed up in the fact that he is a team high plus 9.3 as far as point differential is concerned. That's the best on the team over the last 15 games. Um, and the defensive rating has flipped. The Suns have a better defensive rating with him over that stretch than they do when he rests. So it's 105.9 points per 100 possessions with him on the floor, as opposed to 108.1 when he sits down. Um, the offensive rating is night and day. They're, they're putting up a 119.5 offensive rating with him. Um, and that drops to a team worse 111.3 without him. Um, the net rating is absurd. 13.6 points per 100 possessions. The Suns are outscoring opponents by over those 15 games with him on the court. Um, and it drops to 3.2. So it drops by about 10 points per 100 possessions when he's off the court. Um, which is just absurd. That's exactly the kind of uh, impact that you want to see from DeAndre Ayton without him having to put up, you know, 15 to 20 shots a night. He's maximizing his role. This is maximizating right now. <laughs> if you'll forgive another Ayton pun, I know my Twitter followers hate me for doing the Ayton puns over and over, but I'm not going to stop now. <laughs> so, um, and it's not just over these last 15 games either, we need to point out. So since the 8-8 eight and eight start when the Suns were 500, about 16 games into the season, um, he's averaged 15.6 points, 10.2 rebounds, 1.1 blocks in about 30 minutes per game. He shot just under 65% from the field, and he is a plus 7.4 point differential, which is second on the team to only Chris Paul. So minus those first 16 games of the season where he and the Suns were kind of struggling to find their footing, he's been really great. He's actually put up, the Suns have been a team best 120.4. That's been their offensive rating with him on the court since the first 16 games of the season. Um, and they're a team worse 112.0 without him on the court. So that's a difference about eight points per 100 possessions offensively when he's not around. Um, and we got to give a shout out to Cody Hunter or Cody Hunt. I'm sorry, on Twitter. If you don't follow Cody Hunt, make sure you do. Um, cause he put together a nice little thread. Uh, I think it was two days ago, uh, two or three days ago, uh, with a couple of factoids about Deandre and that I'm going to read off here and they still apply after Thursday's game against the Kings. But Deandre is the only player in the NBA averaging 15 points and 10 rebounds per game on 62% shooting this season. Uh, since the all-star break, this is actually an adjustment because he shot 10 for 11 on Thursday, but <laughs> adjusting his percentage, he's shooting 68.1% from the field since the all-star break, which is the highest mark in the NBA in that span for anyone who takes at least eight shot attempts per game. Um, he's also fifth in the NBA in contested shots, and he's taking the highest percentage of his field goal attempts within three feet of the rim uh, this season. And, you know, that's one of the big things over these last 15 games is he's pretty much all but eliminated, you know, that mid-range jumper that we used to groan whenever he would take that shot, the midi, as he likes to call it. Um, he's all but eliminated that shot from his game unless he faces up and he's confident in, in unleashing it. Um, so only 23 of his 168 field goal attempts over the last 15 games have come on mid-range jump shots from outside the lane. Um, he's pretty much eliminated long twos from his game entirely over that stretch. Um, and even since the eight and eight start, he's really cut down on those mid-range jumpers. So if you're wondering why DeAndre Ayton looks so good, why he looks so locked in, 
why the Suns have looked so good with him on the court. It's a combination of all of these different things. You know, he's doing a great job in maximizing his role, which is honestly just doing some of the little things, the attention to detail stuff, the gritty work, closing out defensive possessions with a rebound, um, contesting shots, blocking shots. His blocks should honestly look better. A couple of times um, we've noticed that he's been credited with blocks and then they've been taken away later off the box score, like in the middle of the game. I don't know what the deal is with that, but um, he's been really good defensively stepping into space, guarding on the perimeter, smaller players contesting at the rim, you know, stopping pick and roll action. And then on the offensive end, you know, just rolling hard, you know, taking advantage of that gravitational pull, knocking down that hook shot that he has, um, and just punishing mismatches when they come, because that's exactly what the Suns need him to do, cleaning up around the rim, making himself available for alley-oops and off of rolls, which he hasn't always done this season. So this has been a really great stretch of basketball from DeAndre Ayton. And if this is the guy that the Suns are getting in the playoffs, he can legitimately contribute to a championship caliber team, which is crazy to say, considering where we were two years ago or even last year with DeAndre Ayton, how much progress he's made, how locked in he's been, um, and how much the influences of guys like Chris Paul, Jay Crowder, Monty Williams, Devin Booker, how influential they have been. Um, but you got to give Ayton credit as well because everyone who talks about Ayton's growth, Devin Booker mentioned it, Chris Paul mentioned it, Monty mentioned it. Um, they've mentioned it multiple times this season, but none of this happens without him being so receptive to constructive criticism, to all of these pointers, all this advice that he's getting bombarded with all the time. Um, because the Suns knew heading into this season, he was probably the weakest link as far as being playoff ready defensively. And now he is a legitimate defensive anchor and a guy who will hopefully be able to stay on the court in a playoff series. And if he keeps playing like this, contribute to winning basketball on a deep playoff run, which would be really exciting for this young team and for a team that has legitimate title aspirations. Um, and with that, we should probably segue into our second topic, which is the big question around this team really. And it's the one thing I think holding a lot of national pundits and a lot of basketball fans everywhere back from declaring the Suns as legitimate title contenders. And that question is, will the Suns lack of playoff experience matter at some point. And I have brought this up multiple times on the show in the past, and I have been firmly in the camp that I believe at some point it will matter, but that gap is really narrowing because as we've touched on in a couple of episodes on this show already, the Suns are getting a lot of practice with closing out close games. And as frustrating as it is to watch them, you know, blow double digit leads to bad teams or let, you know, bad teams hang around. And then it's a close fourth quarter game. The Suns have closed out almost all of those games in crunch time. Uh, they had that one loss to the magic that was close. But other than that, over the last month or so, I mean, they're 31 and seven, 32 and seven over the last 38 or 39 games now, um, which is just absurd. And they're learning how to close out these tight games. They're getting practice at these late game scenarios that they might see in the playoffs down the road, which is huge for them um, because they're, they're, it's kind of, I brought this up before, but it's like training wheels, right? They're playing all these bad teams, these under 500 teams, 
and they're getting practice at closing out games against inferior competition, which is a great way to break in a young team to some of these situations that they might see in the playoffs. You know, Chris Paul has been there before Jay Crowder has been there before, but other than that, you know, Devin Booker, um, Cameron Johnson, DeAndre Ayton, Mikael Bridges, none of them have played a single playoff game to this point. Cameron Payne has played, I think, 11 playoff games, and that was back in 2016 and 2017. He played 10 in 2016 with the Thunder as reserve and one, I think, in 2017. And then there's Dario Saric, who has played like six playoff games, I think, with the Philadelphia 76ers also like three years ago. Um, Javon Carter never played in a playoff game. Uh, Torrey Craig has played in two playoff series with the Denver Nuggets. He's played quite a few games with them, but that's five of the Suns likely eight players that'll be in the playoff rotation that have never played in a playoff game, uh, which is concerning because you look at the teams that they're going up against uh, the Los Angeles Lakers, the LA Clippers, they have certified superstars who have made deep playoff runs, NBA finals runs, won championships. Um, you look at the, even the Utah jazz, people don't trust them as a contender similar to the Suns because we've seen them wither in the playoffs so many times, but they still have more playoff experience than the Suns. They're a cohesive team and all of their guys pretty much have playoff experience, all of their core guys. Um, even the Denver nuggets, you know, obviously, nobody's going to be as afraid of them anymore with Jamal Murray going down with that ACL tear. Um, really hope he's back soon. That's a, you'd hate to see that happen to such a talented player, but even without Jamal Murray, the nuggets still have way more playoff experience than a team like the Suns. The Portland trailblazers have Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. They also have <laughs> the NBA's second worst defense. So I think the Suns would still win a playoff series, but again, that playoff experience really does matter in a seven game series um, when the lights are at their brightest, you know, the Suns are, are depending on a lot of guys who have never been in those situations before. So it is good that they're getting some of these close games to practice with now, but it will be a whole different playoff basketball is a whole different brand of basketball. There's a reason we hear these NBA guys say it every year. It is a cliche. We hear it all the time, but it is still definitely true. Um, so I think it will matter at some point, but like I've been saying, the good news is that they're getting their practice in. And if it's not unprecedented for a team lacking playoff experience with a lot of its core guys to make it all the way to the finals. And there are three teams that kind of came up looking back over the last, you know, 40 years or so, um, both the winners and the losers of the NBA finals, teams that made it to the finals despite um, pretty pretty glaring lack of playoff experience. So the first one going way back to the 1985-86 Houston Rockets, um, but they made it to the finals. They lost to the Celtics. Um, and that was Hakeem and Ralph Sampson. I think it was their second year together. So Hakeem, Ralph Sampson, and Lewis Lloyd, who was one of their top scorers, they all had five playoff games of experience before that the season before so heading into that 86 run to the finals they had five games of playoff experience before that run um, John Lucas had three postseasons to draw on so even a team like that still had more playoff experience than the Suns because those were basically you know their top four guys and all of them had at least played in a playoff game before it wasn't a lot they only had five playoff games to their name it was a short playoff run for them the year before 
Um, but they still had more with their core guys, Hakeem and Ralph, who were still really young at that point. Um, then you look at the 1980 or 1994, 1995 Orlando Magic. Um, that team went to the finals and they lost in the finals as well. Um, Shaq, Penny, Nick Anderson, and Dennis Scott all technically had three playoff games under their belts from the season before. So kind of like the Rockets, they had one very brief postseason run the season before, pretty much got eliminated pretty quickly. Um, and then they went to the finals the next season. So again, they still had a couple of playoff games at least to kind of uh, pop that cherry, so to speak. And they also had playoff experience with Horace Grant, who had been on multiple finals runs with the Bulls at that point. Again, like the Rockets, the Magic lost in the finals. So not exactly if our, if our uh, target here is championship aspirations, we're kind of 0 for 2 on these very rare examples that we found of inexperienced teams making it to the finals. And then we go to the 2001-2002 New Jersey Nets. And this was something that ESPN's Bobby Marks pointed out because he worked with the Nets at the time. Um, they were a team that not a lot of people believed in as well. Similar circumstances, actually. They had a point guard who was getting up there in years who was traded to the New Jersey Nets before the season began. And he didn't put up huge numbers, but his impact on winning on the culture was immediate, sort of like CP3 has been for the Suns this season. Um, you know, Jason Kidd came to town for New Jersey. It was Kenyon Martin's first postseason that year in 02 when they went to the finals. Uh, Keith Van Horn had only had three games of playoff experience before that season. Kerry Kittles, same thing, only three games. Uh, and Richard Jefferson was a rookie at the time, so he had obviously never played in a playoff game until that season. And then Todd McCulloch, who was one of their top scorers um, only had five games of playoff experience. So, you know, those are other than Jason Kidd, those that's a team that's kind of similar in makeup as far as four or five of their top players had very limited playoff experience. Like Kenyon Martin and Richard Jefferson both had never played in a playoff game, but that's still kind of as close as it gets to the sun situation of five of their top eight guys never playing in a playoff series to that point. Um, and, you know, at the time, rookie uh, Richard Jefferson was not a prominent scorer. Like him and Jay Kidd would become very prominent for the Nets, but Richard Jefferson wasn't Richard Jefferson yet. Uh, he was still a rookie and he was kind of along for the ride. Kenyon Martin rose to the occasion, but again, the Nets lost in the finals. So all three of these similar teams that we're lacking in playoff experience, but still have more experience than the Suns will have going into their first postseason together. All three of these very rare teams lost in the finals. So what the Suns are trying to do win a championship with this many of their core rotation, having never played in a playoff game before, if they were to win a championship, it would literally be unprecedented as far as overcoming playoff inexperience. And I'm not trying to say that they're not going to do it. I'm not saying that the Suns can't win in close playoff games because, you know, four or five of their top guys have never been there before, but I think at some point it will matter. So that is something to keep in mind, but again, it's not unprecedented for a team to reach the finals um, to come close to championship glory with a lack of experience, but, we should also keep in mind that 
those are the only three teams out of like 80 teams. Cause I looked at the last 40 years or so um, to try and find examples. And I looked at both the winners and the losers of the NBA finals. Those were, those, those were kind of the only three teams that really stood out to me in terms of playoff inexperience that reached the finals. Um, and all three of them lost and all three of them still had more playoff experience than the Suns. So I'm not trying to be a naysayer or a doubter or anything like that. I really do think this Suns team on paper right now looks like a championship contender. If And honestly, if they aren't scared of the moment, if that lack of experience doesn't come back to bite them, this team is a legitimate title contender. Like I don't, I think the Clippers are a bad matchup for them. I think the Lakers are a different animal when they have LeBron and Anthony Davis healthy. And I think the Nets could be really good if they're fully healthy for their playoff run. But I really do think the Suns could compete with any of them in a seven game series. I don't know if they'll win. I wouldn't say they're title favorites by any means, but I really do think that they could compete with any of those teams in a seven game series. I do think the lack of playoff experience will matter, but I'd be love. I would love to be proven wrong. Like <laughs> I've never covered a playoff game before in my journalism career. I've been covering this team for six years. It would be dope if they just pulled, proved me wrong. And I got to cover a finals game in my first, you know, postseason covering this team. So uh, feel free to prove me wrong sons, but I did want to bring up a couple of historical examples and see how they might compare to the sons just to get an idea of the uncharted territory that we're sort of heading towards with this, with this uh, very young and inexperienced team relatively. Um, but we're going to take a quick break from Suns coverage and uh, do our first ad read actually. So this prod, this podcast is brought to you by Danette May and mindful health LLC featuring Danette May's top superfood product from her earth echo foods line cacao bliss. Nothing feels better than being able to enjoy rich, smooth, creamy chocolate and knowing that you're doing something good for your body. They start with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its health benefits. Then they blend it with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it's friendly to paleo, gluten-free, keto, vegan, and vegetarian diets. For the last eight years, they've been a leader in superfoods market and are proud to have served millions of customers worldwide. So we're offering up to 15% off when you use the code MINUTE. Just go to earthechofoods.com slash minutemedia and enter the code MINUTE, that's M-I-N-U-T-E, uh, to get your discount. But uh, now we're going to go ahead and dive into our G-rated segment, uh, which is Made for Love, an HBO Max series uh, that just wrapped up its first season on Thursday. Um, it's based on a 2017 novel of the same name. And the premise is it's all centered around this uh, wife who is trying to leave her husband named Hazel. Uh, she is played by... Kristen Milotti, who you might remember as the mom from How I Met Your Mother. And she's in this controlling marriage with uh, this tech mogul named Brian, Brian Gogol, or I'm sorry, Byron Gogol. And basically just picture Elon Musk. If Elon Musk was in charge of Apple, that's basically what Byron Gogol is. Um, and he creates this whole virtual reality basically in their home, which is called The Hub. 
He has this technology where basically you can snap your fingers and go anywhere in the world you want to go. Um, and it's kind of like this virtual reality. So they never have to leave their oasis and deal with the problems of the real world. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's very interesting because it's kind of, it feels post-apocalyptic, but it's really not um, the way that it's set up. Um, but basically Hazel is in this unhappy marriage where, you know, she even has her orgasms monitored and she can't play her video game without submitting her review for her latest orgasm. Like it's just weird kind of like dark comedy tidbits like that throughout this show um, that show how controlled she is by her husband and how unhappy her marriage really is, even though they live in this kind of idyllic oasis, this paradise away from it all. Um, and she escapes, she tries, well, first she tries to kill herself um, after realizing that her husband has implanted her with a chip of his latest invention, basically called Made for Love, which is supposed to join a couple in the brain so that they can access all of their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions. So there's no miscommunications or secrets. Like basically your worst fucking nightmare in any relationship <laughs> is what this guy is trying to achieve. And he implants this chip in her brain. Um, and at the time he implants it, the technology is only to the point where he can only see, it's basically uh, just a window. So he can only see her thoughts and feelings and not vice versa. It's kind of like a spy cam into her, uh, you know, whatever she's seeing or feeling. Um, so she basically tries to drown herself and actually finds a way out of the hub through the swim, their swimming pool. Um, and so she escapes this kind of virtual reality cube, this augmented reality, um, and goes back to her home in Twin Sands and finds her dad. Um, and so her, hus her husband catches up with her because obviously you can monitor her movements and they argue. And, um, you know, there's a lot of flashbacks throughout this show to, you know, all the warning signs that there were, that this was such an unhappy marriage. Um, and basically the, the gist of the show is that he's threatening to merge his chip with hers. And in doing so, because the technology is not where it needs to be, um, he'll basically kill her if he does that. So it's basically like come back or you're going to die kind of thing. Um, and, and it's funny because she goes back home with her dad and her dad has become the town pervert. Um, her dad is played by Ray Romano, who is just tremendous in this. This is Kristen Milotti's show 100% because her comedic timing and her dark humor, um, all, for anyone who's seen Palm Springs, this isn't a surprise, but she is really funny. She's good with her comedic timing. So this is her show, but Ray Romano is just kind of delightful as, um, you know, he's this very gentle and very lovable guy, but he also is, uh, he's in a relationship with a sex doll or um, he calls it a synthetic partner. Um, and it's basically, he names her. He's like in a relationship with her because their mother, uh, died of cancer, I think. And he's basically the town pervert now, because of course, if you are dating a sex doll, that's, I mean, that's fair game, it feels like. But um, there's just a lot of weird touches like that, that make it a very quirky and, and dark, darkly comedic show. Um, and I don't want to spoil anything that happens, but there are a lot of quirky characters. And it basically comes down to Byron trying to convince her 
to come back to the cube because he's like he's this megalomaniac but he's also very sincere in trying to love her and in his way that he thinks is love which is very controlling and he's trying to get all this data on her so that he can love her uh, the way that she wants to be loved but he doesn't understand that you know, by building all these fake experiences for her, what she wants is choice and authenticity and freedom. And he's basically confined her to this cube where he's trying to perfect every little thing. Like there's this great bit where he doesn't really like smells. So there are no smells in the hub and she brings this up. And so when he's, when she's gone and off trying to find herself in the real world, he's like consulting with these tech people and trying to come up with smell balls for the cube because he, he doesn't eat real food. He eats flavor balls, which are basically just, you know, a ball of flavor that simulates a real meal. So he's trying to do the same thing with smells and he gets one that he's like, that he likes. And he's like, mm, what's this? And the guy's like, it's glass. He's like, Ooh, I love that one. <laughs> like just the most like non-smelling shit. And it's, it's hilarious how sincere he is and eager he is to make her happy, but in like the creepiest and most unsettling narcissistic ways. Um, so, and he's played by uh, Billy Magnuson, who is really good in that role as well. Um, there are a lot of underrated performances because Kristen Milotti kind of steals the show and Ray Romano is, is a big name and he's great in this as well. But Billy Magnuson has really nailed kind of this Elon Musk knockoff who is is trying to not buy his way into his wife's heart but basically convince her that all is well um when he's really actually done some messed up shit to her um so it's it's a very interesting show and i don't want to give away the ending because it does have a bittersweet kind of twist to the end um which is different from the book so if you've read the book um the ending to this will be very different and honestly the show apparently left out a very major book character so i'm curious to see if they bring it back for a second season because it's, it's a very quick binge there's only eight episodes and they're half an hour each so you could probably knock it out in one lazy sunday honestly um but it is very funny in its dark humor and it doesn't get like super dark or anything it, it's kind of twisted some of the concepts it brings up as far as um you know that level of mind control and it it does make a point obviously about tech companies and everything that's wrong with Silicon Valley and, you know, tech companies and their privacy issues and how much they know about us and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the biggest takeaway is, is kind of that, you know, obviously love can't be quantified. It's something that you feel. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on, but it really does come together nicely as an entertaining, very quick binge, binge watch on HBO max. Um, and I, I would definitely recommend it if you're looking for something quick and something new to watch because um, there's there's a lot of cool concepts as far as you know questioning whether Hazel herself is lovable. Um, obviously, she's in a messed up relationship, but you know the way that her husband tries to paint her, the way that her dad tries to paint her. Obviously, these are two males who have messed up majorly in her life. Her dad had a drinking problem and kind of abandoned her when the mom died. Um, and the husband obviously has major issues beyond that, but it's interesting that Hazel herself kind of struggles with some of these things, um, these feelings that she's never been loved or taken care of in her life. And so it, it kind of all falls into place as to why she was so enamored with this person that she 
this tech mogul that she basically fell in love with and married, fell in love with and married the first night that they went on their first date together. So um, there's a lot of cool concepts here. It's an interesting show. It's not, you know, a fantastic or a life-changing watch, but it is definitely entertaining. And, and Kristen Milati alone is worth watching in it because she is just very funny in this. Um, I'm curious to see if they bring it back for season two. If there is no season two, I honestly think the ending can kind of stand on its own in this sort of bittersweet, tragic kind of way. Um, it is a, a very heartfelt ending and a sad one, but it's, it's a good show. And if they do bring it back for season two, because there are a lot of plot threads that are kind of left dangling there to leave that opening for a second season. Um, I think, I think people that have watched this first season will definitely want to tune into the second one, which is all you can ask for when you take a chance on a, on a weird kind of premise show like this. But for my final score for my G rating, I'm going to give this a 7.5 out of 10. Um, I think it has room to improve if there's a second season and if it lives up to the first one in some way, you're always kind of rolling the dice when you go beyond the limits of a book for a season like this. You know, the first season is usually based on the first book. There is no second book. So they'd be kind of going off script for a second season. But, um, you know, the author was, I think, a producer on this show and had a lot of input. So hopefully they'd be able to capture the same feel that made the book so well-liked and made this show so successful ultimately. But uh, that's going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast. Please make, please make sure you subscribe. Uh, leave me a five-star review if you haven't already. Tell your friends. Uh, but for this episode, this is Gerald Borgay signing off.